Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Did you know I've had my podcast for 15 years? Do you know that it is the most downloaded sports podcast of all time? Did you know I have guests from the sports world, from the culture world, people who work for The Ringer, people outside The Ringer, celebrities, experts, you name it. It's on my podcast three times a week, late Sunday night, late Tuesday night, late Thursday night, the Bill Simmons podcast. Check it out on Spotify. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the Stadio Podcast in Ring RC. I'm Musa Kwanga. I'm Ryan Hunt. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm right, thanks man. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Back in Berlin, nice. firing on all cylinders. Yes, my wardrobe is intact. It's immaculate. Got the blue shorts. Wow. Doing the Lord's work. Yeah, exactly. With a roll neck? Short season. No, 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 not at all. Listen, I can tell you multitudes. There's other things going on. <laughs> Should we do some admin? Let's do some admin. Uh, we hope everyone's staying safe and well. Also, it's summer. The temperatures are rising. They are indeed. Might be worth staying hydrated. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Just in case. Just in yep. case. Uh, this is our last week before our little summer break on Ringer FC. Uh, so today we're going to do a bit on the World Cup qualifiers because Wales made it through. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And we're going to do some what ifs today. Other than that, Stadio Archer's playlist on Spotify. If you want to search for all the music we play out on each episode. Is there any other admin? Oh, I've got a piece going up on The Ringer. I wrote about, yeah, just filed it actually about Wales, Ukraine and what that means for both nations on and off the field. Nice. What it means for Wales legacy and Gareth Bale in particular. Um, So yeah. Well, in that case, why don't we move on to Wales versus Ukraine now? And you can take the lead on this, Musokwanga, because <laughs> Wales won Ukraine nil thanks to a Yarmolenko own goal from a Gareth Bale free kick. Mm. Secured World Cup qualification for Wales, their first in 64 years. 64. They didn't qualify for a single tournament until Euro 2016 in that period. And then they've gone to three of the last four. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And we touched on the Scotland-Ukraine game last week. And this was a very similar feeling fixture, I feel, because obviously Scotland hadn't been to a World Cup for a very long time. Wales hadn't been to a World Cup for an even longer time. But obviously with everything that's going on in Ukraine at the moment, like you said, we both said the other day, just like, oh, it would have been great if they could have all gone. Yeah, exactly. But they yeah, can't. yeah. They can't. Um, but for the game itself... I mean, great game of football. It was an amazing game of football. And Ukraine was so unlucky. They were, they were. And this is the thing. So this game, um, the XG was like 0.6 something, 0.63 for Wales and like almost two for Ukraine. So Ukraine really piled Mm. on. But here's the thing about Wales. Wales attacked with real intelligence when they have the opportunity to do so. And I I would say credit to both teams simply because when Ukraine were chasing this game, they never really looked panicked. Mm. Like the way they constructed attacks until the very end was always so thoughtful. And I thought Zinchenko in particular, well, many people would have said that, but Zinchenko in particular was exceptional. Like Zinchenko playing inside is such a joy to watch. I look at him and think, yeah, this man would be starting in central midfields for like, 
for most teams. So there was a thing I was reading about Carl Walker. Carl Walker said Zinchenko is one of the three most skillful players at Manchester City. Wow. He said, there's, he said there's a separate league where it's basically Riyad Mahrez, Bernardo Silva and Zinchenko in terms of technical level. He said actually they're in a different level to Phil Foden, um, Kevin De Bruyne and Jack Grealish, for example, which is wild to think. But technically you can see that, that the, the way that he's playing in this game, there are so many passes where you're like, that is such a pet midfielder, where he's slightly out in the left wing and he plays the diagonal pass infield. It's not the obvious ball to play where he flips the ball up, he chips the ball almost like Raul Gonzalez style into players. He pulls wide. I mean, just his control, his mastery of the number eight position. is It's sad to say, but Zinchenko may be one of the top 10 number eights in Premier League football. The only problem is that six of them play ahead of him for Manchester City. <laughs> Come to Arsenal. Come to well, Arsenal. Well, you know, it's so funny you said that because I was going to mention that. I was going to say Zinchenko to Arsenal. The problem is, I don't know where you fit him. But then again, I'm like, actually, if Zinchenko's available, you just buy that guy. And I, I'm, it's so funny, you've kind of scuppered what I was going to say, because I was literally going to throw in a hot take of Zinchenko to Arsenal, because I looked at Arsenal's team and thought, this man would get regular football, and the level he would raise it would be astonishing. Like, he'd raise the quality of the midfield play by, like, by 20%. Like and then he's also, Granit Xhaka becomes the second choice centre midfielder who can also fill in at left back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But Zinchenko to Arsenal, I'm quite serious about that, actually. Well, there have been a little bit of, uh, there have been a few rumblings. And it really? wouldn't be a signing that I I think it would be dislike. a brilliant signing. I think it would be a brilliant signing. I think it gives you left wing options uh, for Martinelli, gives you left back, and it gives you like the eight position. Yeah. It's just, uh, he's extraordinary. So shout out to him. Shout out to Malinowski as well. One regret, and I said this in the piece, was that I would have liked to see more shooting from distance from Malinowski. Hmm. We didn't really see him unleash. And given that's the thing he can do, I didn't see enough of that from him. Um, but that's a minor criticism. But again, but back to Wales, credit to them because Ben Davies was extraordinary in the centre so defence. He My was extraordinary. Yeah, right. Ben Davies was extraordinary. Like we saw a couple of tackles, no disrespect to Joe Allen. We saw a couple of tackles which revealed the stress of the situation from Joe Allen. From Ben Davies, I did not see a single tackle where I felt like, this man is playing anything but a Premier League game of football. Mm. This was the remarkable thing. The level, the lack of panic visible in the body language of players playing arguably the biggest game of their lives for a variety of reasons was extraordinary. I thought Dan James um, at times struggled, but when he was good, he was brilliant. And Gareth Bale just, I drew a parallel between Bale for Argentina, <laughs> Bale for <laughs> Wales, and Bale, can you imagine? Jesus, that's terrifying. Parallels between Messi for Argentina and Gareth Bale for Wales, where they're both aging superstars who are absolutely loving life with a natural team more than they are for their clubs. And both of which, even though they're clearly the stars of their teams, their, their countries have found this structure or this emotional structure or tactical structure where even though they're clearly the primary match winners for their team, they've given them the freedom to play with some kind of a joy. Mm. It's a really special thing. It's really unusual because a lot of the time you see players where there's a dominant footballer in terms of their stardom and they gravitate. But what I love about Wales is even though he's a star, I don't see difference. Mm. Like so the quality of some of their attacking, I mean, they hit the post, the cup, they hit the post once. Brennan Johnson, I think it was, had a great season um, himself. And I just love the way that Wales took responsibility throughout. And obviously- That's a yeah, good word Karen, that actually, because I was going to say, it's going to jump in, but that's the difference between Wales and a lot of other sides who have a talismanic world-class player in maybe, let's say, a side that doesn't have the rest of the tools mm. to compete deep into a, an international tournament. Mm. For example, with Messi, even though Argentina had more pieces and better pieces for the rest of the squad, it felt like the, so much of the responsibility was on him. And it's never quite felt like that with Wales. And if it did, it was quite a long time ago. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. it's felt very much like a squad and a team, not just relying on it. one player to drag them through games. I mean, and I, I think love Bale this, yeah. has yeah, yeah. dragged them through some, some fixtures for sure. Mm. But, you know, you look at the Euros, for example, like Ramsey was scoring goals. They were very much, they were very much operating at, at more than some of their parts, I think. Mm, they totally um, agree. Totally agree. Yeah. So it yeah. does, it's never felt like it, like they rely solely on one player to drag them through. And if you, I, I wanted to just touch on this piece that Tim Spears wrote for um, The Athletic. And the opening paragraph is, is quite remarkable. It says, Gareth Bale played 290 minutes of football for Real Madrid in 2021. 20, 
sorry, in the 2021-22 season. Aaron Ramsey managed three league starts for Rangers and didn't come on in the Europa League final until the 118th minute. Wayne Hennessy couldn't get in Burnley's team and has played seven league matches since the end of 2018. Joe Roden played 22 minutes for Spurs from the start of February. Kiefer Moore featured four times for Bournemouth this calendar year. Robert Page was sacked by Northampton in 2017 and hadn't managed since. Wales, it shouldn't work, but it does. I was thinking about this this morning. And there are a few, arguably their two best players need new clubs. Mm, yeah. And it's like, you've got a World Cup coming up. What about the national team just signing take time a off. contract, yeah. basically? <laughs> well, just take time off. Well, this is, I was thinking, Wales basically now are a bit like Greece when Greece won in 2004 in terms of having players who are actually still playing at very good clubs and still training, may not be fully match fit, but they're still training mm. and playing with very good footballers week in, week out, in training at least. So they will go under the radar. And their togetherness, I mean, I look at this and think, you know, if these players need clubs, well, why do they actually need to play regular football at this point? Why not just get like fully match fit, take the time off and really focus? Because, you know, Ukraine, they, they've had their league suspended since what? since like, I think February, they've been, mm. they've been off for a while as well, but the quality of the football they produced, you wouldn't think it necessarily. You really no. wouldn't think it. So when you've got in a unique case like this, with this Wales team, where they've got such a strong collective project and astonishing team spirit, I was thinking this actually, this is probably the best team that Ukraine could have lost to. In, if there's a team that's easiest to stomach losing to, it's great to lose it to, to, to a team to whom it means so much. You know, it would have been much worse losing to a kind of, if you'd lost to a kind of, a team that was ma- not mailing it in, but a team that had like, you know, unbelievable resources. Yeah, like for example, if, if someone like in Italy had, had got into the qualifying bit and was, were just right. like, oh, we're going to have to go the long way through. But we're, yeah, it would have been a bit, I think it would have felt a little bit, I mean, I, it's tricky for Ukraine because they should have won the game. I think so. Yeah. And they could have had a penalty actually. Yeah, they could have had a penalty, but also the there Gerard, were a couple yeah. of chances that Yuremchuk had, which I think he could have done better with. There was the offside one. But if it had gone yeah. to VAR, he wouldn't have been offside. And I think he should have yeah. put that away. Yeah. Um, Hennessy made a couple of unbelievable saves, admittedly. But there were also, yeah, I know the conditions were a little bit tricky. But there were a couple of times when Ukraine really could have done with better finishing. Yeah. But this is, again, we said the other day after the Scotland game that Wales possessed such a different threat to Scotland. And yes. we think that overall they're a better side. And... They just have more tools. Yeah, they just, just have more tools. I think we saw attack, that. Yeah. We saw that. Yeah. And um, it's one of those kind of like, you know, the, the whole Ukrainian side got applauded by the whole stadium. This is a very, these, these two fixtures have been very, very unique, I think. Mm. And no doubt about it, Ukraine wanted to go to that World Cup and they will be devastated that they didn't make it through. But I think the fact that they've even pushed it to that far and probably still should have gone in their circumstances with everything that's going on is genuinely unbelievable. They absolutely and, and should have gone. And likewise yeah, yeah, for Wales yeah. to go. Yeah. It's amazing. This is a, popula- a country with a population of 3.1 million. This is it's, a, it's, it's bizarre, like massively overperforming if you think about it like that. No, great point. Great point. Yeah. As we all know, they will go into the group alongside England, the United States and Iran. They have to fancy themselves in that group. They really have to fancy themselves in that group. There's no reason why they shouldn't fancy themselves to get out. I like, agree. They, they should look at that. They, will, they should never say it publicly, but they should quietly be saying two wins and a draw for this lot. Their target is to get out of the group. Yeah. They should, they should look at, they should quietly look at that and be like, they'd have to announce it publicly, be like two wins and a draw. Because in tournament match play, if you consider like the experience, if you look at the kind of, let's say Joe Allen the trio of Joe Allen, Aaron Ramsey, Gareth Bale, those three have navigated between them every type of elite football situation. Like really, at, whether it's league or international, they've navigated all of it. They've, they've, they've experienced it. Those, those three players will have all the kind of, what's the word, um, institutional knowledge you'll need to talk about big game situations and scenarios. And Iran, US and England, I think that Wales are well equipped to find gaps in those, in, the, in those teams or to cause them serious problems, to cause them a variety of problems, especially when they're going into it with full motivation. So mm. they, should full, they should have full confidence of trying to get out of that group in terms of aiming for that. Um, but just, just to Ukraine quickly, I feel awful about this because the pressure on these players to perform and go through 
it's really, you know, not just to win and give some joy to the country, but to keep Ukraine in the global conversation, to keep people talking unquestionably with them not being at the World Cup, people be talking about the country less just because of the kind of the footfall, the social media imprints. You know, Zinchenko scores a spectacular goal in, the, in a group stage in Qatar mm. that puts Ukraine up the kind of, you know, trending on the whatever, and it, that won't be a thing now. The one thing I will say about that is, look, ultimately, the bravery that Ukrainians have shown on the field and as ambassadors for the game should now be shown by the politicians. And not Ukrainian politicians, but politicians that are in a position to help that country from outside Ukraine. So that's really on them now. Um, and they've, they've, they've done their piece. There was a moment when you saw just how difficult this, this game was, where there was a miss by, I think, Yuremchuk. And you saw him being dragged to his feet by one of his fellow players, just like, get up, because you could just see him sinking into like, you could see him like spiralling. I'd missed the chance, I missed the chance. You could see him spiralling and the player, his fellow player just dragged him up and it was like, dude, let's not do this. Mm. And it was really, really painful. That bit at the end, you're watching them all clapping to their fans and most of them are holding it together. And then you see Yarmolenko, Yarmolenko basically who has done so much in terms of advocacy and so much to get his team to this point. For him to score the own goal, it would have been, it's, it's hard to imagine a more cruel outcome mm. given who that happened to and given what he said publicly about the situation there. And when you know things like the fact that Zinchenko basically like was keen to go back and fight, mm. the only thing that stopped him was his daughter and his family. I mean, when you hear things like that, you understand, well, you don't understand, but you get a sense of, you get a glimpse of the level this has been pushing these players to. So yeah, it's now the job of the world's politicians to step in and do what has to be done but I just have to come back to Wales because I feel we have to like, you know, obviously give them credit because they're central. This is their victory. Hennessy, Davies, Alan, James, you know, Gunter, like it's just. And Rob Page, and this is an interesting thing yeah, on the managerial front because, you know, Rob Page is technically still interim slash caretaker manager at Wales. Ryan Giggs is officially the Wales, Wales manager. His um, trial has been delayed until the 8th of August due to a lack of court space. He was due to go on trial as uh, from BBC article in January, uh, Manchester Crown Court accused of coercive behaviour and assault against his ex-girlfriend and her sister. Awful, yeah. yeah the yeah. date was pushed back due to, I think, a lot of a number of UK courts working through a backlog that was obviously made worse by the pandemic. Page is the caretaker manager, but this is his team. This is emphatically his team. 2020, he came in as interim manager. So obviously he took them through all the Euros and stuff. Mm. And like, I wonder whether it might be smart from the Welsh FA just to kind of be like, well, do we really need that noise hanging over something that's been a very kind of harmonious and smooth process through the Euros to now? Yeah. That is a decision that they're going to have to make at some point. Um, I mean, to be honest, I think they probably, personally, I think they should have probably made it sooner. I agree. And I think actually this is the perfect time to make that um, because it'll be making for a position of positivity. Yeah, I agree. Actually. Yeah. So this is maybe the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to all our Welsh listeners and the Welsh squad and commiserations to any Ukrainians. I know that this was, this was a really tough run in a really, really difficult time. And I mean, I know there's not going to be much con consolation with that, but it's just unbelievable that they were this close, I think, given everything that was going on. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, there were some other international fixtures because football never stops. UEFA Nations League is back. Uh, we're not going to cover the Nations League stuff today. I mean, obviously, there were some key results. Uh, the Ralph Rangnick era began with a bang for Austria. Uh, England losing to Hungary. Big result for Norway against Sweden. Uh, Armenia beat Ireland. Obviously, Italy and Germany drawing one all. I was looking at the fixture list. The final round of fixtures is the 18th of June and club pre-season start the first week of July. What are we doing? What? Straight into a World Cup in November. And then the, I think the World Cup final is what, the 18th of December? And Premier League will start again on Boxing Day. These guys need a break, man. Everyone needs yeah. a break. It's ridiculous. But um, maybe we'll, we'll wrap up some more Nations League stuff on, on, yeah, yeah. on the next one. One that I do want to mention in terms of football uh, that went on, it was a friendly, but Argentina beating Estonia 5-0 with five goals from Leo Messi. <laughs> now, a lot of talk, people are like, it was only Estonia. Okay, here's the thing. Messi is looking... Terrifying. He was good in it. He was good against Italy. He was, oh, yeah. Now, is it, yeah, Messi against Italy and now Estonia, he's operating at peak capacity. 
and it's really exciting. He talked a lot about COVID. He had a lot, the effect of COVID that it had on him in mm. terms of his lung, you know, his lungs, his breathing, it was really difficult for him. He was tough to run and the heartbreak of leaving Barcelona. And he said, next year I'll be like back to, back to my level. Well, yeah, I think that's uh, it's safe yeah. to assume he will be. Yeah. Should we take a break then get into some wives? Let's do it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, man, let's do some what ifs. It's been a while. It has. It has been a while. Thanks to everyone who submitted what ifs. There were loads and loads and loads. Tried to get back to as many as possible. Some we'd already done. Apologies to any people who submitted Arsenal ones. I personally wanted to just swerve them. <laughs> swerve the ass. It's been a long old season. It's been a long old season. And uh, I thought maybe we'd get into some non-Arsenal ones. And non- to be honest, most United of my comments ones. are basically, my comments basically make this a default Arsenal What If podcast. Yeah, I know. I mean, one thing, no matter what What If we get, one thing I know will happen. Does that mean Jose Mourinho ends up? I don't know. <laughs> Let's have this one first from Hamza Ali. Hamza wrote a big email to us, but the long and the short of it is, what if Aston Villa had been chosen for the takeover from the Abu Dhabi group and not Manchester City? When Manchester City were taken over, Aston Villa were in the middle of three consecutive seasons finishing sixth in the Premier League. In two of those seasons, they pushed hard to finish in the top four until their campaigns were derailed by the, uh, in the last hurdles of the season. They had an impressive young squad with players like Gareth Barry, James Milner, Ashley Young, Stuart Downing, and players that were picked up by Man all players that were picked up by Manchester City and other top four teams. They also had well respected and no nonsense manager Martin O'Neill. My main points for the what if would consist of would the success have just been a mirror of what happened at Manchester City over the years, or would it have been different? Hamza goes on to explain why they think it would have been different. And uh, I, I'm guessing Hamza is a is a Villa fan. Yes, yes. <laughs> because there's a little bit of shade thrown at some rival clubs. So uh, <laughs> in order to not offend any fans of rival clubs, I think we'll swerve some of it. But that's the main gist of it. So, yeah. Okay, so let's remind everyone, as Hamza said, Villa had finished sixth that season. And at the time, were one of only four English clubs to have won the European Cup. Manchester United, Liverpool and Nottingham Forest being the other three. Uh, obviously, they're now one of five with Chelsea added to the list. My first reaction to this was that I don't think the takeover receives as much negativity from rival fans as Manchester City did. Because I feel yes, like... Yes, yes, that's right. I agree, I agree. In English or British football culture, Aston Villa were seen as maybe a quote-unquote more historically successful football club. I think as well, you didn't have the direct opposition to Ferguson. Yeah. So you had that football empire and then the threat of the football empire right next door. Whereas with Aston Villa, it's like a different point of national gravity, like the Midlands. And then the thing about this is the reason why this would be, in financial terms, something interesting is what this does to, to Birmingham, what it does for Birmingham as a destination already, like, you know, the second city mm. of the UK. But in terms of a kind of cultural hub, the amount of money that gets put into their area in terms of regeneration. It, because it's, there's something about this, an interesting thing, there's two things going on with, with, uh, with Aston Villa. A takeover would both allow them to build, well, to rebuild that mm. footballing um, superpower, but also offering, not a blank canvas, but yeah, maybe, maybe a canvas to do something different. And this whole concept of the, you know, England's second city, it would almost, um, it would almost throw that into question, I think. This is the thing. I think that because you look at like Aston Villa's youth system, right? How well they develop. If you look what they've done without that huge injection of money, I think this change would be, or would have been seismic. Mm. I think actually it would be close to the kind of thing you were going to end up seeing at Newcastle. Like what we're seeing at Newcastle is pretty much what I think we would have seen at Villa. Like you would have had 
brilliant scouting. If you look at the kind of players Newcastle already been linked with, this is the frightening thing for their rivals. They aren't clowns. Like Newcastle aren't really spending. They're not going after like targets that I think are unwise. Like every major target Newcastle have gone after in recent months, I've, I've looked at it's been like, oh, actually that's, a, that's smart. And I think Villa would have been absolutely the same. Absolutely the same. So in terms of what that means for Villa, okay, so first of all, I think that Villa, one of the clubs that really suffered from the ban of English clubs after Heisel. Because if you look what they were doing in the Premier League, well, the first division as it was then, and Europe, they had not just pedigree, but they were generally dangerous force. They were last league champions in 1981 and they went and won the European Cup the following year. I think that by now, Aston Villa are a, they're a Champions League perennial. I think they're a Champions League perennial at this point. I think that if you look at what they've done without all that money Mm. and how well they've just been run in their support base, and how smartly money has been spent. For example, I think that if, if Villa get taken over, I don't even know if you get that wild rush of early spending because you're not against a direct rival. Like the problem, one of the problems that Man City had was they were looking next door. They're both in Manchester and they were looking at Manchester United slightly covetously. When you come to Aston Villa, you don't have that same desperation. You see it with Newcastle. Like you don't have that desperation to be like, oh, we've got to be on top of the city. You're already kind of so well supported. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like Wolves and, and Birmingham City and West Brom have, you know, there are a lot of big clubs in that city. But I Definitely. Think with, with Villa. But in, think, terms of, in terms of the desperation to be seen on a global. Yeah. 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 I think it's tricky to, to, to say, you know, they are by far and away the biggest club because I think a lot of other clubs will push back on that. But I think if you look at... And rightly, yeah, right. Yeah, but, if you, yeah. but you know how, like, remember that time when we said that Everton were like a historically a really, really big football club? And a couple of people chimed back at us about that, being like, in what world are Everton a big football club? And it's like, well... Well, obviously they are. Yeah, obviously they are. If you're looking at, for example, in 2008, only Everton, Arsenal, Liverpool and Manchester United had won more top flight league titles than Villa. Right. Uh, Chelsea still haven't won as many top flight league titles as Villa. Now I know I'm going to caveat that with obviously a lot of Villa's success was, it was really, really bulked together at the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. You know, they won one, two, three, four, five, six titles in between 1894 and 1910. So a lot of that success comes from like the formation and the, the, the evolution of the early, early professional football in, in England. Mm. They won the league in 81. They won the FA Cup in, uh, they had like a couple of FA Cup wins in between that time, between the early dominance and their European Cup win. I feel like I've had this conversation more recently than I have done at any other point since I've been following football about actually, no, like Forest have won two European Cups and Villa have won a European Cup because of what people now deem as like huge clubs. Yeah, put some very, respect on their name. Yeah, like, basically put some, put some respect on their name, basically. I think yeah. in terms of like culturally huge football clubs, uh, the difference between culturally huge football clubs and just rich clubs, there is a difference. Sometimes clubs are both and sometimes mm. clubs aren't. You know, sometimes clubs are very, very rich and successful, but maybe not culturally huge. And with and Villa, I think, I think this, Villa, this is a great chat with Villa because Villa would have, a takeover for Villa would have allowed them to kind of reanimate all that, not re but all that heritage. Mm. You've got a European cup in your trophy cabinet. That's now a thing you go and you basically like, if you're brand building, you go out to new markets and some old ones and you're basically like, you just parade that thing. You get all the club ambassadors back and you really just like push that heritage out there. And the kind of players you can then attract in 2008 well, let's play There's that game. Of, yeah, 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 let's because do that. Because if Manchester City don't get t- taken over, I mean, obviously they've, they had the Shinawatra takeover before that. So they were in the, right. a little bit of that middle ground of a little bit of new money, but not quite that much new money. But that first transfer window, high profile players they bring in, Shea Given, who was at Newcastle, Nigel De Jong, Craig Bellamy from West Ham, Wayne Bridge, Rubinho, Sean Wright Phillips, who comes back from Chelsea. Vincent Company. So if I mean, you think you have a, a Premier League Hall of Famer in Vincent Company, imagine if he goes to Villa instead. Jesus. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, look, obviously different, you know, different scenarios shake out, but a Villa takeover is one of the few situations I look at and be like, I can see them achieving something 
quite similar and maybe even culturally more resonant because the problem that Manchester mm. City had, the problem Man City had was their success, and this is no disrespect to them, was slightly further away than, than Villa's was, right? It was, it was not so fresh in the memory. Villa's European Cup success didn't, would not allow people to go, oh, you just bought yourself to places you've never been at before. Mm. So what that does culturally is it gives Villa actually weird enough, the kind of authenticity that Abu Dhabi, I get, think we're kind of craving with this takeover because there's a thing that happens with Man City, right? Where they win so much and they're so dominant. And this is where I think the key thing would be. I think actually with the right team, if you put in the same kind of team that, let's say the same team you put in at City as Villa, I think actually Villa achieve astonishing things similar to Manchester City. I think they do that actually. I think the expertise is too good. But I think culturally what happens is interesting because you look at Man City, right? Mm. One big problem they don't have is ex-pundits who won a ton of things. Villa have that. They've got a lot more people who've won stuff with Villa in and around the press who would then be on the talk shows more regularly, building the kind of Villa brand. Because City didn't really have that. Like, you know, this is the problem. Like when City win week in, week out, like big victories, people sort of tune out. Oh, 5-0 here, 4-0 there. That doesn't, it's not so easy to do that with Villa, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you basically can then, you then have a few people who might get into media work who have won a European Cup and a league under Villa. Right, right. In Absolutely. The 80s. So in yeah. the 80s, it's kind of like, it's just recent enough for people to- Bingo, exactly. To kind of actually pay attention. It's like that time when, uh, was it Martin O'Neill was on the BBC World Cup coverage and they were talking about who'd won Champions League's European Cups. Wasn't Sadov there? Yes. Was Sadov there with Martin? But Martin O'Neill was just like, I well, I've won too, you know. I loved, yes, I, I, lo- I loved that. And everyone was just like, whoa, yes, yeah, I put loved- some respect on my name. <laughs> and rightly so, rightly so. I loved that. But in the lead up to the takeover, I think, um, so in 2006, City had finished a point above Villa in the league and they were 15th, Villa was 16th. The following season, Villa finished 11th, Man City finished 14th. And then in 2007-8, so the final season before the takeover, as we mentioned, Villa finished sixth on 60 points. They were five points off Everton, who were in fifth. This is the thing. Villa go and do some really... Ex- yeah, Blackburn yeah. was seventh, Portsmouth were eighth, Man City were ninth on 55 points. Do you know what's really interesting, though? The following season, Villa still finished above Man City. Man City finished 10th that season. And then in the season after, in 2010, that's the Man City finished three points above Villa in fifth. This is the thing about Villa. It's just... It, it, it ends up going big, but culturally as well. That's the, man, such a great question. And it's really interesting because that 2009-10 season when they finished above Villa is the season that they take Gareth Barry off them. And they also took Adebayor from Arsenal, Colo Torre from Arsenal. They'd brought in Silvino. They took Lescott from uh, Everton. Vieira had come back. Uh, Rocky Santa Cruz had come in from Blackburn. And they'd taken Tevez. Imagine if Villa had had been in that position and uh, executed that strategy that Man City did, which is very much what Newcastle kind of started to do in January, where the first thing yeah. you do in a big money takeover like that is that you target the teams around you or your direct rivals and try pick their best players. And it's exactly yeah. what Man City did. They took, they tried to go after a couple of players from Everton. They went after a couple of players from Villa. They took a load of people from Arsenal. They then went, right, let's try and get someone from United. To make. Do you remember the welcome to Manchester thing, the Tevez thing? I used to go past that all the time. And that was a power move. Yeah, that's that, a power move. That like was a, astonishing. It's a statement. I knew a lot of people who had a real soft spot, a genuine soft spot for Man City in the 90s and early 2000s because purely because of Manchester United's success. Mm. I don't want to downgrade what Man City were, but they were almost felt like the cult club of the city compared right. to the big multinational of Manchester United across the other side of town. Right. So when a club like Manchester City then gets the new stadium, gets this new money and starts kind of disrupting stuff at the top. And I've spoken to a lot of City fans about this before, about the difficulty of the psychology of where your fandom comes from at that point. Because where does this align with what, what we've grown up supporting the club as? And obviously they'd had that like drop down to the, the lower tiers and then they'd come back up. And I wonder whether that happens in the same way at Villa because they had had that, that, they were one of the few clubs in England who had had that European pedigree at the top level. I think they get bigger signings. I think because Villa already have a European Cup in their tro- in the trophy cabinet, mm. this is why I think I think the quality of player they start attracting. Because when you start going to recruit players from South America, elsewhere, 
you're like, we already have a European cup. That's huge because then effectively you're kind of like a Santos. You're like, oh, this is a historically great club. If you look at like, look how Milan were able to buy all those brilliant players from mm-hmm. Brazil, even when Milan was struggling, that is the benefit of pedigree. So what happens, I think, I think this affects Real Madrid, for example, and I'll tell you why, because I think Aston Villa end up with either a Luka Modric or a Tony Cruz. I think that is the kind of player they end up with. I, I genuinely think because there was some talk at the time about, I don't know if um, they went after a player like Modric, but if you think of the conversation that you enter with all that money and that place, you're then competing with Spurs for Modric when he leaves um, Zagreb. Mm. And that puts you, does that make sense? So I think there's a disruptive signing that we haven't anticipated here that happens. And I think it's one of those, one of those Madrid men's days, whether it's like a Benzema or a Modric or a Cruz. And I think that because the shift in the center of gravity in European football. Yeah. Sorry, hum, I just want to jump in here because Humza actually said in his e- in the email, uh, are Villa therefore able to attract better players quicker? For example. Yes, I think they are. Does Kaka go to Villa in 2009? At the time, he was heavily considering Man City, who were a few players away before deciding to move to Madrid instead. I think that's the kind of move that he makes. See, I don't think in 2009 that move happens right then. I don't it's think too Kaka, early. I don't think Kaka, I don't think the, I don't think Kaka ends up at Villa in 2009. A lot of the players that Man City sign, mm. the, the marquee ones like Company and people like that, I think Villa have a really good shot of getting those players in 2008 9. I agree. I don't think maybe the, I think Modric is a really interesting one, but also you've got to remember that Modric wasn't a superstar when he went to Spurs. He was a really, really amazing piece of scouting. So who in 2000 and say 2011, 12, what does Villa's scouting system look like? Do Villa go after a Ben, do do Villa go after an Ozil instead of Real Madrid? Bingo. This is the thing, like, and the reason I mentioned Modric is because actually if you look at the midfield configuration, you had Barry there for City, but actually, the different types of player, but Modric is someone that could move the ball on at a certain speed. And in terms of the profile, because Villa were close to success than City, I think, in terms of their off-field prestige and whatever, it means they start recruiting for a manager like Pep earlier. So it means that when Villa get taken over, they, they immediately start knocking on the doors of all the managers that are huge, right? Like, like Pep, um, like Jose, they immediately go after them. And people like one of those people, whether it's Jose, whether it's Klopp, they all get messages within a few months of the takeover. And of course those managers all go, no, like Mm. you're not doing anything yet, but they don't forget the approach and the approach that's made is really respectful because the approach they're making is we want to restore this club to European greatness. We want to offer you a project. We're not a team that hasn't gone there before. We've been there. We want to return there. We believe that you're the final piece in that plan. If you make that pitch over the course of five years, one of those huge managers, I think, says yes. That's what's interesting to me. And so in terms of Villa's scouting, I think someone like a Benzema is quite interesting because I think that's the kind of player, like Modric, this is the thing about Modric is fascinating to me. Modric took a while, given what he's achieved now, he did take a little while to get going. Mm. And I don't mean the quality of his performances. He was always brilliant. I mean, like, Modric was underpaid for a long time. I think he signed like a six-year contract with Spurs for like, not the, not the biggest amount, but I mean, he was underpaid for a long time. I looked at the, the figures he was being paid. And I think also as well, you start seeing them look at a team like Barcelona and not trying to destabilise it, but looking at like older players and like Barcelona squads. I think what Villa start doing is Villa start targeting players who are getting a bit older, like let's say a, um, a type of profile of player, like a Xavi Martinez type profile of player, an older player on the fringe of a squad who's got Champions League experience and going, we need European Cup pedigree in our squad. You've got three years after your career. We'll pay you really good money to have you kind of there with the youngsters. So I think that end, I think the Villa supporting cast is really interesting in terms of recruits. I mean, you look at like Real Madrid now getting like a David Alaba, right? Mm. I think that's the type of signing that Villa make three, four years into a spending cycle. If you look at Manchester City, the quest has been for the European Cup, right? Right, yeah. Now, I know a lot of City fans prefer winning the league because they, I remember them saying like, we're not used to this. We're not used to actually being in a, like, for example, if someone had said 15 years ago to a Man City fan, in 2022, you would have just won your fourth or fifth titles or fourth title in five years. They would, I don't think a single Man City fan would have believed you, not one. Because of that, 
the league is still, I think, and I might be wrong and it won't be the same for all fans, but I do think that for Manchester City fans, the league is still the priority. Mm. This quest of winning the first is a, is quite a different pressure to almost like a quest to return to where we've been. Oh my goodness. I think Villa become, I mean? like a, Villa become like a Bayern Munich. So like, and I don't mean in terms no, of no, a actually, dominance. Do you know what I was yeah. going to say? Yeah. I was going to say yeah. they, were like, they would be like a Dortmund. Do you remember when Dortmund went for that run in, when they went to the Champions League final? Right. There was an amazing choreo that they had at the mm. Westfalen Stadion, which was basically the um, guy with a, with a Dortmund top hat on and some binoculars, like searching for the lost, the lost cup, which is like the European cup. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's like, it's returning back because they'd won it in like the nineties. Right. And I think right. it gives, I know we're kind of rambling and meandering a little bit here, but I just find it such no, an interesting a point of a what if, because the, the reason why, the reason why I say, the reason I say a Bayern is the wages though. Dortmund is trouble. They have is the wages. Villa don't, Villa don't have that problem with that kind of money. And that's why no. I mentioned Bayern because I think Villa will be better able to retain their elite talent. What Villa then does to the youth academies, like, you know that, that down the line, Villa will love to be throwing money at like a Jude Bellingham, for example. And there'll be some, of course, like there'll be some awful crossing transfer. Say because, Jude Bellingham. You can't no, you know, say no, Jude no, Bellingham. No, but you, know, you know what happens? Birmingham City, great. You can't say you know, that. No, what happens in the future? No, what happens in the future? So I can imagine it. Years in the Poor future. Birmingham fans have been subjected to, you know, half an no, hour no, no, what or so of us going on about Villa with, with money again. And now, and now you throw out a Jude Bellingham at Villa. <laughs> Fear not, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. A bidding war happens because they go after Jude Bellingham years from now and he says no because he loves Birmingham City so much and the bidding war allows him to go somewhere and secure Birmingham's financial future. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> so the bidding, but the bidding war becomes absolutely ridiculous because when a club gets money, we know they try and destabilise off the field as well, like other mm. clubs. Chelsea were on that run and they went after Gerrard. The next thing they get is an email from Aston Villa. Oh, we hear there's a conversation to be had. They try every single door and some of those doors unexpectedly open. How many times have we seen in football? Like, I mean, this is the thing as well that this is a what if conversation, no, but one I want to talk about is specific transfers that aren't just financially seismic, but spiritually seismic in terms of they make you believe that new things are possible. Mm. When a certain player goes to a certain club, you're like, oh my goodness. Like when Sergio Aguero went to Manchester City, I knew. We all knew yeah, that was yeah, going to change everything. His debut, it was just we, like, all right, yeah, that's it. Um, we, we all knew. It, yeah. you know, Before that, it had always been a little bit of a kind of like, these guys aren't serious. Actually. Right. But that, that, and I think that's yeah. the kind of signing, I think Villa make more signings like that more quickly. Yeah, I agree, actually. Because they're in a, me. They, they also have a better foundation to build on purely from squad size. League position, uh, or squad, squad depth, size. Sorry, like, and squad quality. Bingo. They're building off a more substantial and solid foundation than Man City were. And I don't think that's, that's not throwing any shade or being disrespectful. I don't think Manchester City, I mean, literally, if you look at the league tables for those years, it suggests that. Yeah. They can lean in on that kind of like historic success a little bit. They've been to the very top, one of the few English sides who, who had ever won a European Cup. And I feel yeah. that they have more of the, the romantic success, let's say. Yes. To attract people to that history and maybe build a little bit quicker than Man City did. And I think they maintain it. I think, I think now if Villa are taken over in the same way that Manchester City were and everything kind of, all the same tools are put in place. And I don't know. I don't know if they get Pep because I feel like so much of getting Pep to Manchester City was because of the personnel that arrived at Manchester City and they became, it became their mission to build essentially like a pep lab that he can just come and sit in and mm. it's his thing forever. I don't know if Villa do the same thing. I wonder whether Villa maybe play it a little bit more traditional with the money in a way. They had Martin O'Neill. So the shift it takes to go from a Martin O'Neill is an underdog yeah. style. No, this is not criticism, but to go from kind of underdog energy, a better fit for that is kind of a Mourinho, to be honest. Mourinho is a much I better fit. get dragged into this. But he is though, isn't he? He's a much better fit. If you look at where um, Villa are and what they're achieving. Maybe, but I wonder whether Mourinho would remember at this point he's what he's gone to Inter, right? So he's in the yep. midst of the Inter thing. So he's not going to be first wave. He then goes to Real Madrid. I think that's extremely difficult to take him away from Real Madrid. So if Mourinho is going to come to Villa, I don't think you'll, you're looking at it until what? When, it was, when was it? 2013? When he went back to Chelsea? Mm. I think that's more attractive. I think Mourinho... 
from, but then I don't think he goes from Real Madrid to Villa. No, I don't. This is one of the rare what ifs that Jose's trajectory is the same. I think for Villa, it's more likely that they lean on a Klopp in like 2016. Yes, I think that's right. I think they need to go somewhere because I think Klopp culturally is such a great fit for, would have been a great fit for Villa in the region yeah. at that time. I, I think that would have worked. Yeah. Klopp to Villa. There we go. We somehow <laughs> managed to do a what if that could potentially piss off fans of numerous West Midlands clubs and Manchester clubs and Liverpool clubs. Wow. That's good a, jo- not a good bad. job. We, it's a good job. We got a summer break coming up because, uh, <laughs> but also actually, do you know what? I feel like, for example, Villa now are still solidly pushing for top four. If that takeover happens, I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure if they do the four and five years like Man City do. Maybe they're not as desperate to get there. Maybe the thing about the city thing is there's an element of the desperation of we have to build. The money that was spent on city was spent on cities if city didn't already have an existing football Mm. heritage. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That maybe is the difference, the urgency of the expenditure. And maybe that's different. A restoration project. And I don't think, and I, th- I also think doing mm. it in a city where you don't have a Manchester United across the other side of town means that you, mm. you do it in a different way, actually. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, because it just adds another element to it. So, I mean, we've, we've yeah, I, I like that one. That's a great question. That's got me dreaming and thinking and all the rest of it. Yeah, love that. <laughs> um, let's take a quick break and then we'll do another one quickly before we get out of here. Let's do it. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! I thought we'd do this one because it's kind of topical at the moment, and it looks like it could happen. Who knows? I feel like we've done stuff relating to this, but just with different clubs a few times now. But anyway, let's have this one. Ahmed Youssef, what if Paul Pogba signs for Real Madrid instead of Manchester United in 2016? Oh, oh wow. Goodness. (laughs) Well, for a start, he's a lot happier. Zidane knows exactly what to do with him is what happens. I don't think Madrid win as many Champions Leagues simply because that configuration of Cruz, Modric, Casemiro is impregnable. That makes them less solid in midfield. Like, and I have to respect Real Madrid for this, the winning ethic. I don't think they're more successful Madrid, but I think the Pogba is happier. And I think the Zidane's, I think Zidane's happier because he gets to manage Pogba. And because he doesn't know that he would have won three in a row otherwise, I think that the atmosphere at Madrid is just a more, it's a more pleasant environment, I think, but they win less, which is a weird thing to say. Where does Pogba play is the question. Mm, I agree. Because where does Pogba play? Because Casemiro, Kroos and Modric is absolutely the first choice midfield. How do you accommodate him? It's interesting. I think, and obviously the way that Pogba's career has turned out, we know that Zidane really wanted to work with Pogba. So he had a plan for him, right? So Zidane had a plan. He looked at those three midfielders he had, but he still thought, I can do more here. So I think that Kroos is the one. If anyone gives way, I think it's Kroos. I think those two tend to alternate more. Modric, Casemiro, and one other, I think. But I think what you also do with Pogba is you start pushing him further forward. So you have him, I think, in a kind of 4-3-1-2. And that's where he's dangerous. Because if, if Pogba plays in a 4-3-1-2, it allows Madrid to play as a possession-based team or a counter team. I think what Pogba ends up doing is a kind of, and this is no disrespect to Isco, but remember Isco had that incredible 26-2017 season? I think Pogba ends up ent- and occupying a space like that. And I think he ends up being the playmaker that Zidane fully trusts because Zidane doesn't trust tens. So he signs in 2016. So Real Madrid have already won that Champions League. Right. So 16, yeah. 16 17 is a season that they get Pogba the double, joins, I think. Of, yeah. yeah. I think that, I think that Pogba basically becomes the player that Odegaard and Isco threatened to be. I think he gets that pride of place because Zidane trusts him to do the running and the pressing. Because don't forget, like 2015 Pogba in the Champions League, his pressing was outstanding. He did the work. Mm. So I think he, I think he becomes, I think Real basically ended up playing a 4-3-1-2 and he becomes that player. You have Pogba behind Bale, Benzema, or Bale, Ronaldo, whatever it is. I think one of those signings doesn't, yeah, I think, I think that, yeah, 4-3-1-2. I mean, look at, look at the, look at the Champions League final, right? For example, Morata, yeah. Bale, Asensio come off the bench mm. for Kroos, 
Isco and Benzema. I think proper starts as a 10. Do you know, the only reason I say that is because Zidane clearly had a plan for him and went after him. And I think he was meant to be the 10 that Zidane was like, I trust you to do the job. I don't trust Odegaard. I don't trust Rodriguez. If you think about it, look, what, was it, what, what do they all want? A hard running player. And Pogba, actually, if you put him at a 10 in front of that midfield, it's kind of the Juventus type configuration. Defensively, it's still quite good because you've got Casemiro and Modric, who are excellent defensively. And Pogba in a midfield four can press from the front. Benzema definitely can. Obviously, Ronaldo's the main man and the goal scorer. It's less exciting, it's less compelling, but it has that fluidity as well. And don't forget, Pogba can also pull wide. With Pogba there, they resemble more closely a Juventus team. Yeah. A hybrid of late 90s, well, early 2000s Juventus. Also like Nedved, this kind of propulsive 10, an all-action 10. It's Pogba unleashed in a small space where he has to press now and again. With a, when, you look behind, when he looks behind him, you can see possession and defensive strength. I think that is the, that's the true level. You know, with, with a player like that there, it might affect, weirdly enough, France's prospects at the World Cup 2018 because Pogba's not used to playing that role with Kante. Mm. Because to go from being an all-action 10 to a kind of six, like he does with the Deschamps, is a big, it's a big shift. Like, yeah, I think, I think Pogba excels as a 10 for Real Madrid, actually. He may not be a, a nailed-on starter for Real Madrid if he goes there in 2016 because Zidane has just won the first one, right? Yeah. I, weirdly, I know that it doesn't really matter because that's not the point, but I can't see Real Madrid spending 100 million on Pogba then. No, that's a good, that's a good shout. But if he does go, let's say they do, I don't think Zidane is the kind of person who feels like pressure to play someone just because they spent a certain amount of money either. So- no, definitely not. Definitely not. But I, I only mentioned this because I remember how desperate Zidane was to get Pogba. Mm. And that made me think that he had a plan for him that involved him being a starter. That's the Maybe. only thing. Yeah. I'd love to ask Zidane this. I would actually. It'd be amazing. It'd be really just, amazing. If there was ever a chance of talking to Zidane and being like, look, it's just going to be football. Yeah. Just football questions. And we've just got a little questions of like, what were your plans for? That's the context of the interview. What were your plans for? Dot, dot, dot. Paul Pogba if you bought him at Real Madrid. Like just literally questions of like scenarios of things where you wanted to do stuff but couldn't. What would you have done? And that's the question to ask so many managers. What would you have done if you could, there's moves you wanted to pull off, how tactically would you have set up if you'd be able to buy X, Y, Z? That is a question I'd be desperate asking because there's just so much stuff like that. Put it this way. I think Paul Pogba's stock is higher now. Yes. Because it wasn't like a homecoming for Paul Pogba. Mm. It would have just been another marquee signing for Real Madrid. And that, that, I think that was, that was looking back, actually, it's healthier. Yeah. I think for Pogba, it's healthier because he's not the main man. You're playing in a side with Cristiano Ronaldo in it. Like, you're not the main yeah. guy. Whereas at Manchester United, he was very much like, you know, world record transfer at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, he's like the marquee signing to take them. And remember, the, the, the timing that they go, he goes to Manchester United, it's what, four years since the last title? Yeah. When was the title? No, 2013 was the final title. Tw- uh, 13, 13, yeah. Yeah, 13. so f- three years after the last title. Uh, Didn't Van Manchester Persie United. win it for, Van Persie yeah. won it for United. Yeah, thanks. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> whereas you go into, if, if for example, Manchester United had won the league and or, and or the Champions League in 2016 when he rocks up, it's a different ball game. I actually don't think the pressure is as on Pogba. With, at Real Madrid, he goes into that squad as just being another guy and actually a yes. very, very junior player, even for yeah. the money. It's exactly what he needed, isn't it? It is, Weirdly, actually. If he, yeah. he walks into the dressing room at Madrid, whereas at Man U it might be like, oh yeah, the glory times are back again. You walk in at like Madrid and it's like, all right, you nod. All right, Tony. All right. Oh, you might get a high five. Oh yeah, welcome. Yeah, good luck. And then some people don't even look up from their iPhones. Well, this is <laughs> it. You, the, go, you, you go in there with having players like Jesse Lingard, Marcus Rashford and, and these kind of players like looking up to you. Yeah. He then goes into that Real Madrid dressing room with no one looking up to him. He's looking up to other people. And I think for his development, that actually at club level, it's that's really, really good. And now if you think about it and they've brought in Camavinga, you then have this change in dynamic where you have Pogba moving into more of a senior role within that midfield. I think he drops deeper at this point. Yes. Maybe you try him in a three with Camavinga and Casemiro as the, as the pivot or any one of those, that, that combination with Modric or without Modric, with Kroos, without Kroos, 
I think there there are games that he maybe plays as almost like the deepest in that midfield and just sprays passes about. I think there are games in La Liga that he could play like that, that. Yeah, Pirlo style. Now in a, in a Real Madrid midfield after six years under his belt there where there is no like, there's none of the talk around Pogba that there has been mm. because he's just been quietly winning. That's a great point. I think he's a vastly different player. And a better one actually. Yeah, I agree. A better one in terms of like the range of skills developed fully. God, I love that as a, I love that as an idea, as a question too. The scary thing about Real Madrid, and I said this I think before is, you look at the young core who are now coming through, they've all played decisive roles in this, in this title. Mm. It's not like they were just like, you know, subs coming on. They all can look at that run, Valverde, Camavinga, Vinicius, and they're all like, yeah, I was essential to that. That's super scary because now you've given them that win and that taste for it. And I wonder if Pogba looks at Madrid and what they've built there and been, I wonder if he looks at his club career the last few years and it's just like, I wonder if that was the best use of my, mm. I wonder, I wonder. Anyway. Do you want to do one more? Yeah, one more. Yeah. I'm going to throw this out there because I think this is one that I'm just doing for you. Ha, go, go for it. Go for it. Because I feel like this is something you want to do. Okay. Declan Playdell says, what if Brazil beat Italy in 1982? I'm thinking mostly, of course, about Socrates, <laughs> but feels like so much runs from this. Oh my God. Okay. So do, put it this oh my way. God. If okay. Brazil win it in 82, it's been 12 years since their last World Cup. They don't win it until 94 and the pressure on winning it in 94 when they finally did it. This changes everything. was wild. If Brazil win the World Cup in 1982, it gives them permission to shape the face of football. When Italy won in 1982, it set the tone. If you look at the final results, right? If you look how defensive football got, not immediately, 86 was three, still 3-2 in the final, but then you had 1990, the dull final, 1994. 1998, a 3-0. It's a slight outlier. The 2002, you're starting to see late, with the exception of a couple of those finals, the trend has been towards later scoring, right? Yeah, was it in 86, four goals? Uh, sorry, in 82, four goals in the final 35 minutes. I just think there's something about if the 82 Brazil team wins, the permission that gives coaches down the pyramid to play in a more attacking style because that's a winning blueprint because football's a copycat sport. Like if someone wins a certain way, everyone's like, okay, we need to go 4-3-3. If it's 4-1-4-1, okay. If Milan win a certain way, then it's the Christmas tree, right? And now we're seeing Christmas tree teams coming. I think Argentina have a Christmas tree now and that's going to be interesting in terms of what that shapes. In and now of course, like, you know, got teams playing with like, you know, the defensive midfielder, the Rodri and the two eights, the three eights, because that's working for Man City. Regardless of whether that works, the players available, teams start shaping themselves in that image. So if Brazil win that, you don't have that 82 team as a tragic generation. It's a lesson to teams going, you can't enjoy yourself and play football because Brazil tried, it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the Italian mode, the defensive counterpunching, it becomes relegated towards obscurity and it allows footballing nations who've played that kind of freestyle with not as much success as Brazil, to start going and express themselves. And it means a whole generation of disrespectful football teams. Teams that come at you with attack from the opening whistle because they're like, actually, this attack is the way forward. So it means that teams that get punished in later World Cup tournaments for playing with abandon get a bit more leeway because their opponents play with abandon too. I think it should... So for example, teams like Nigeria might do better. There's a lot of conversations about like, Nigeria, should they have done better? Should they have been less attacking, but then teams are more inclined by the cultural pressure, the peer pressure to be attacking for 90 minutes. And it takes a lot longer. That does get overturned eventually, but it happens. So in terms of concrete predictions, I don't think you see West Germany winning in 1990. That's interesting. I don't think that happens, not out of disrespect for them, not because they're not a brilliant team, but I think that teams like that face onslaughts because the sensible, disciplined, you know, when Italy beat Brazil, it was seen as very much are the sensible, the sensible, disciplined, sophisticated Italian European side overwhelms the South American passion. That narrative doesn't happen. Mm. Passion wins. And so for the next few years in European football, international football, domestic international, you see a shift. I think that Serie A, for example, has a lot more goals in it because the kind of players that get bought from Brazil, Brazilian teams all of a sudden get raided by European teams with more resources, including Serie A, I think. Sorry, that's just my galaxy take. There's a special mention for Socrates in there as well. Yeah, yeah. 
So I mean, he wins. He wins a major trophy because remember that he only won like Brazilian state championships. If Socrates wins a World Cup, he ends up running for president of FIFA or being on the executive committee at some point. He, or he sets up a parallel FIFA or something. If Socrates wins a World Cup, because his cultural power is already huge, if he wins a World Cup in 82, with the things that he's talking about politically, four years after Argentina have won that World Cup, if you think about what that means politically, Argentina won a World Cup in 1978 with a military junta, basically like killing political opponents. If Socrates wins in 82, like this is a pro-democracy footballer, an anti-fascist, all his advocacy becomes entrenched in World Cup law. He might be the most outspoken. Socrates might have been the most politically outspoken in terms of progressive sense World Cup winner we had seen. Do you think he, he goes Fiorentina in 82 instead of 84? I'm not sure that he does because if you look at the kind of clubs that are after him at that point, it changes the entire conversation. Don't forget Nelson Mandela's still in jail, right? Mm. This is years before Ruud Hullet wins World Player of the Year and dedicates it to Nelson Mandela. Mm. This is years before all of that, right? If you think yeah. of the political engagement that's waiting up the line for footballers who haven't had the benefit of Socrates' advocacy politically off the field, I think that reconfigures so much. It changes so many conversations because it emboldens people to say stuff because Socrates is now saying the lesson is then you can play with passion and you can play with progressive political values and you can win the biggest tournament and come out and talk about it because that man talked about a lot. He said a lot. I just think that culturally it changes a huge amount. That's actually super exciting. Uh, the, the prospect of Socrates as president of FIFA is just, my God. I think it's a parallel God. thing. I think what happens is he tries to do a FIFA, it doesn't work out, and he basically just sets up an NGO, like a foundation or something, and it basically just does like, you know, there's, there's a tournament, the Alternative uh, World Cup, mm. that, that teams will play in. I think he ends up doing really interesting work. Because, and don't forget that his younger brother is Rai Oliveira, who wins he, the World Cup in 94. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rai still goes to Paris, as you remember. But in terms of the work they do together, that's wild. Do you think Socrates founds the Woke World Cup? Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! The Woke World Cup. I dream of it. Oh my goodness. We should design. Do you know what we should do? Every student is paid a living wage. <laughs> Everyone. The final, the final, the final is in Freiburg. <laughs> <laughs> if there was a Woke World Cup, what would the stadiums be? Who would the referees be? Where would it be hosted? How there's, would it be funded? There's our That's there's our next conceptual episode. We should do like commemorative tees, like an imaginary commemorative, you know, like the old 80s t-shirts and 70s t-shirts yes. for World Cup. We'll do the we'll do one, the woke the woke World Cup. That's amazing. <laughs> there you go. That's our next t-shirt drop. We should stop there. Do you know why? But only because all the great what ifs need to prompt another great what if. <laughs> and I think I think that would be the best. There you go. The woke World woke Cup. Woke Woke Cup. <laughs> hey, for the actual good of the game. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, FIFA. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who submitted what if. Sorry, we, can, we could them. only get to those few, but that, yeah, they were brilliant. All right, let's bounce. Uh, we hope everyone is staying safe and well and hydrated in this, in the summer, in the European summer. We'll be back later in the week and then we'll take a little summer break before the Women's Euros. Uh, don't forget to check theringer.com forward slash soccer for Moose's piece going up. Might be yep. up by the time you listen to this. And also the Stadio Archers plays on Spotify. Speaking of which, we're playing out on Marion Black, a beauty called Who Knows. Anything you want to add, Doc Wonga? Yeah, I loved that. Thank you so much. Thanks to everyone. Thanks to all have... listeners. That's such a joy. Such a I joy. Know, I know. All right then, everyone. Uh, we'll see you later in the week. Until then, much love. See you then. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Maybe sunshine and maybe rain. But as for me, I'll wait and see And maybe it'll bring my love to me Who knows, who knows, who knows any better than I That is she who's keeping me alive I'm keeping the little girl as my goal Makes my life worth living, you know Carry